We all need to laugh. We choose truth over facts. And now for a perpetual political protest in progress. Judge my physical mental suit, my physical as well as my mental suit fitness. Coffee time. And good morning. It is uh, coffee time here at the Ammo Can Coffee Social Club Conservative Hour of Power and Enlightenment Salon. I'm Jason Floyd, your host. And this is part number eight, episode eight, chapter eight, uh, triple eight in the special interview and uh, series with David Ignell covering his book on the American Grand Jury and more specifically the Alaska Grand Jury. Welcome back to the mic, uh, David. Well, thanks, Jason. Um, sorry to hear that uh, you had a little bit of a rough night last night, uh, but uh, you know that's that's the way things are from time to time. And uh, I figured today, uh, you know, we've we finally made it. We're we're uh, we're now into the second half of the book, which is uh, about uh, the Alaska grand jury. Uh, we're going to focus, uh, from here on out, we're going to focus entirely on Alaska. Uh, just as a recap, um, you know, the first half we talked about the powers of the grand jury, the common law powers, uh, going back a thousand years and, and just the development of those powers, uh, you know, as, as it came from England to the shores of America and then through the industrial age, how those powers were were increased uh, so that the grand jury could investigate anything. So here we are uh, going into uh, chapter eight. Um, and this is one of the longest chapters of the book. Um, so I, I want to jump right into it. And um, uh, just as a, as a quick overview, um, this chapter is about the making of Article One, Section 8 of our Constitution. Uh, this is where our grand jury rights are protected uh, from the government. And it's right up there with uh, the freedom of speech, freedom of religion, civil rights, and due process. Uh, the, the founders uh, felt that the grand jury, protecting the grand jury and its investigative powers was that important, that it's right up there with those other things. Uh, one last thing I'll just say is, is uh, this chapter... Uh, is intended to bring forth the thoughts of several different founders who spoke on the floor during the uh, Constitutional Convention uh, back in 55 and 56. And so there's going to be a lot of quotes. And so hopefully uh, listeners can, uh, uh, you know, they can, they can understand these quotes and uh, we'll be able to get through this. Uh, so unless you have any further questions or comments, uh, Jason, um, I'll, I'll get going on this. Nope. I think we are rod, uh, ready to rock and roll. Uh, like, like you mentioned, I, I did have a long night last night. But as you can hear, the coffee grinder is grinding away in the background. And uh, soon I will have some uh, liquid inspiration in front of me. So let's uh, buckle up and uh, sit tight as we listen to Chapter 8. Okay, chapter eight. Alaska's founders decisively protect the grand jury and its investigative powers. The 55 delegates to the Alaska Constitutional Convention, or ACC, convened from November 8, 1955 
through February 6, 1956. These 55 founders of Alaska's Constitution had been elected by territorial residents, and their regular occupations were as business people, homemakers, miners, fishermen, attorneys, territorial officials, and pilots. The meeting site of the ACC was the University of Alaska in College, Alaska, near Fairbanks. The relative seclusion of the campus facilities provided an excellent setting for the delegates to meet and confer on constitutional issues. The secluded site was deliberately chosen over the territorial capital of Juneau to minimize intrusions from the entrenched lobbying interests there. Mother Nature provided a huge assist in keeping distractions at the ACC to a minimum. On the first day of the convention, the temperature was minus 18 degrees, and in later days, dipped to minus 50 degrees. It got so cold that car tires froze flat. The lobbyists and other organized groups didn't show up. Left alone, the delegates, their advisors, and convention staff were able to concentrate their efforts on what was best for the people. The format of the ACC was influenced by recent constitutional conventions in New Jersey and Hawaii. A few committees were formed to deal with procedural issues of the convention, while others were formed to deal with different substantive areas of the Constitution. Each of the delegates generally served on two committees. The Committee on Preamble and Bill of Rights, or Rights Committee, was tasked with considering, number one, the preamble to the Constitution, number two, an article establishing a Declaration of Rights, and number three, an article on health, education, and welfare. Issues pertaining to the future of the grand jury in Alaska were first considered by the Rights Committee. The seven members of the Rights Committee were a blend of professionals with backgrounds in law, business matters, and ethics. The committee was chaired by Dorothy Oz, a lawyer from Anchorage, and its vice chair was Ada Ween, a businesswoman from Fairbanks. Other members of the committee and their, and their respective occupations were John Helenthal, Anchorage lawyer with extensive Juno roots, Robert McNeely, a Fairbanks lawyer, Seaborn Buckaloo, an Anchorage lawyer, James Dugan, a Fairbanks businessman, and Roland Armstrong, a Juno clergyman. The Rights Committee had as its consultant, Dr. Sheldon Elliott, who as noted in the previous chapter, was the Dean of New York University Law School and Director of the Institute of Judicial Administration. Another consultant was Dr. Donald Moberg, Professor of History and Political Science at the University of Alaska. The Rights Committee held their first meeting on November 15th, and over the next three weeks met on roughly 15 occasions. The committee's minutes reflect that William A. Egan, president of the ACC, attended several of the meetings. During the course of its deliberations, the Rights Committee concluded the grand jury should be preserved in the Alaska Constitution for all purposes. In its commentary on the preamble and the Declaration of Rights, 
the committee singled out the investigation of public officials as the grand jury's most important function. Quote, the grand jury is preserved for all purposes, particularly for investigation of public officials. A grand jury of 12 is provided as adequate for the performance of its functions. The article provides for alternative procedure of indictment or information and allows the judge to call the grand jury at any time. Many states have found the same or similar procedure to be most satisfactory, unquote. The Rights Committee transmitted its proposed preamble and Bill of Rights, along with its supporting commentary, to Mr. Egan on December 15th. Section 7 of the Bill of Rights contained the language pertaining to the grand jury as set forth below. Quote, Section 7. The grand jury shall consist of 12 citizens, any nine of whom concurring may find an indictment or a true bill, provided that no grand jury shall be convened except upon an order of the judge of a court having the power to try and determine felonies. But when so assembled, such grand jury shall have the power to investigate and return indictments for all character and grades of crime and that the power of grand juries to inquire into the willful misconduct in office of public officers and to find indictments in connection therewith shall never be suspended. No person shall be prosecuted criminally for felony other than by indictment or information, which shall be concurrent remedies, but this shall not be applied to cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia, when in actual service in time of war or public danger, unquote. Notably, the grand jury's power that, quote, shall never be suspended, unquote, was its ability to inquire into willful misconduct of public officers. On the 42nd day of the convention, December 19th, Chairwoman Oz presented her committee's proposed Bill of Rights to the other delegates. She explained to the delegates, There were about 19 sections in the article, each dealing with a different subject. So she would point out a few things in general and then mention a few specific provisions. One of the first sections in the Alaska Bill of Rights that Ms. Oz addressed was the one concerning grand juries. She told her fellow delegates, quote, Section 7, which pertains to grand juries, is also different from the federal. We preserve the grand jury but we changed the number of grand jurors from 23 to 12, and we also modified the use of it somewhat. We are not substituting something entirely new, but something which has been tried in other states and is found to be more efficient and economical without in any way taking away any protection which the people have or should have." The economic considerations referenced by Chairwoman Oz in her introduction were a big issue to many of our founders. Future Governor Jay Hammond would ultimately vote against statehood because, in his words, quote, our ability to finance and administer was very dicey, unquote. In the mid-1950s, Alaska had a population of roughly 70,000 people spread out over its 665,000 square miles. In Mr. Hammond's opinion, quote, there was no economic potential immediately on the horizon 
fishery, timber, mining, trapping, all gone downhill, unquote. The entire delegate body first took up its consideration of the, uh, of the Alaska Grand Jury on January 5, 1956. Under the Rights Committee's original proposal, a person accused of a crime didn't have the absolute right to a grand jury investigation of the charges, but rather could be prosecuted on, quote, information, unquote. This meant that if anyone was accused of a crime, it was entirely up to the prosecutor to decide whether to take the matter to trial. A grand jury could only be convened upon the order of a judge, but there was no requirement for a judge to impanel a grand jury. Delegate Ralph Rivers, an Alaska resident since 1906, who had served a few years previously as Alaska's attorney general, was the first delegate to address the proposed structure of the grand jury. He wondered if it would be a better practice to require the grand jury to investigate criminal charges unless the accused decides to waive that right and consent to be tried on information. Chairwoman Oz responded that the Rights Committee had considered that alternative procedure, but decided to go with their proposal because it had been adopted in some other states. She felt the committee's proposed method speeded up the criminal process, yet still seemed to protect the rights of the accused. If a district attorney started getting carried away with his zealousness or political ambitions, the governor had the right to call the grand jury. Mr. Rivers responded that was another part of the proposal that bothered him. He felt there should be a grand jury every year to carry out its, quote, particular purposes, unquote. He worried that a grand jury might never be called if it was discretionary. He asked what other part of a constitution would provide for a grand jury. Miss Oz acknowledged it was the usual practice to preserve the grand jury in any Bill of Rights. She justified the committee's recommendation by referencing the economic issue again. By putting the decision in the hands of a government official, quote, you're not spending a lot of money by calling a grand jury when there is no real need for it, unquote. Mr. Rivers replied that if the proposal clarified who the proper official was, then he would go along with it. The next delegate to speak on the issue of the grand jury was Warren Taylor, a lawyer from Fairbanks. Mr. Taylor had been an Alaska resident since 1909 and at age 65 was one of the oldest delegates. In matters of criminal justice, he had significant experience serving as a U.S. Marshal in Cordova for 13 years and as a U.S. Attorney for six years. Mr. Taylor noted widespread abuses in criminal prosecutions based on information rather than on grand jury investigations. Quote, Now I have felt that great injustices have been done in the territory of Alaska through the failure of a grand jury to sit. I have known possibly hundreds of men who would be arrested shortly after a grand jury had convened in the fall, and they would sit in jail until the following fall before their case was even considered by the next jury. And I know of many instances in which the accusation was very frivolous. And when the grand jury had considered that case, they would bring in that it was, quote, not a true bill, unquote. And there, a year of a man's life is gone because of some accusation made against him. If we do not have grand juries to say whether or not there is probable cause, 
I think we would pro- possibly be better off in the administration of justice. Despite his high praise, unquote, despite his high praise of grand juries and their ability to weed out frivolous charges, Mr. Taylor was also expressing concern with the economic realities that Ms. Oz had spoke, spoken to. In a sparsely populated territory, Alaska, where grand juries met infrequently, people falsely accused were having to sit in jail for up to a year before their charges were considered. Ms. Oz responded that the committee members had all felt the grand jury should be preserved for criminal matters, but they were very much aware of the resulting difficulties from the infrequency that it met. Towards the end of the day, Anchorage lawyer Edward Davis proposed an amendment that followed the alternative procedure that Mr. Rivers had raised earlier. Mr. Davis had been an Alaska resident since 1939 and served as president of the Anchorage Chamber of Commerce in 1946. He would later become the third president of the Alaska Bar Association and following statehood, served as a superior court judge in Anchorage for 14 years. Mr. Davis's proposed amendment ensured an accused person the absolute right to a grand jury investigation and indictment. Proceedings by information could only be allowed if the accused waived his grand jury rights. Mr. Davis requested that discussion on the amendment be postponed until the following day when two absent members of the Rights Committee could be present to explain their reasoning in the original proposal. The next morning, the amendment was the first substantive matter taken up by the delegates. A vigorous debate quickly developed whether grand jury investigations and indictments should be required to prosecute citizens accused of felonies. Proponents for both sides of this issue generally agreed that citizens needed protection from false accusations and overzealous prosecutors. The issue boiled down to the effectiveness of the protection offered by the grand jury and whether that protection was worth the cost. Speaking on both sides of the issues were lawyers, lawmen, and laypeople, many of them leaders in their respective Alaskan communities. Their viewpoints are set out below in detail because they demonstrate widespread consensus among our founders on two important issues still relevant in Alaska's criminal justice system today. First, unduly biased or overzealous prosecutors are a real threat that the public needs to be protected from. Second, the consequences of this danger can be so severe that the cost of a grand jury's protection should not be an issue, even in a state that is financially challenged. Delegates River and Taylor were among the first to speak on the morning of January 6 regarding the use of grand juries in criminal indictments. In his speech, Mr. Rivers, the former Alaska Attorney General, twice stated the grand jury, quote, serves as useful purpose, unquote. Mr. Taylor followed by supporting the grand jury for investigating public officials but labeling its use in criminal matters as, quote, historical tradition, unquote, that had, quote, outlived its usefulness, unquote, in formulating a modern document. In his opinion, use of the grand jury in criminal proceedings was in the same class as the dodo bird, done for and gone, quote. Now we are trying to formulate a modern document 
a modern constitution in this convention. Just because a grand jury is a historical tradition dating from the time of the drawing of the federal constitution, why do we have to hang on to these old traditions that have outlived their usefulness? Let us make this modern and up-to-date, and I think that doing away with the grand jury will expedite the criminal procedure. I think that the grand jury is in the same class as the dodo. It's done for. It's gone, and we might as well relegate it to oblivion, where it belongs because it serves no useful purpose except for just investigative purposes, unquote. The most vocal opposition to Mr. Davis's amendment came from Anchorage lawyer Seaborn Buckaloo, a member of the Rights Committee. At age 35, Mr. Buckaloo was one of the youngest and most recent Alaska residents among the delegates, having arrived in 1950. During his career, he was an assistant adjutant general for the Alaska National Guard, a U.S. District Attorney for the 3rd Judicial District, and a Superior Court Judge for the 3rd Judicial District. 1973 to 1989. Ironically, Mr. Buckaloo seemed to agree with his opponents regarding the first concept above. He felt an indictment process was so dominated by prosecutors that it offered no real protection to citizens. In Mr. Buckaloo's opinion, the cost of grand juries was not justified because they didn't assert their independence enough. He referred to the grand jury proceedings as, quote, sort of a rubber stamp deal, unquote. And then he quoted it again. Mr. President, I think that probably we should advise the non-lawyer delegates that at the time the grand juries convene, the prosecutor controls all the proceedings. The prosecutor decides what witnesses shall be called. The accused does not have a right to be represented by counsel. It is a secret proceeding, which is more or less geared and controlled by the prosecutor, and most of the time, it is something that is just sort of a rubber stamp deal. And actually, I can't see that it affords an accused person much protection at all. And usually it works the other way because a prosecutor will convene a grand jury just to get the testimony of his weak witnesses under oath. And he might call a grand jury to more or less buck up some of his witnesses, and it can be used for all kinds of things. And I can see where here in Alaska, if we follow this amendment, it would be awfully costly on a small state. And I figured that if it afforded any protection, regardless of the cost, I would vote for the amendment. But I can't see that it protects the citizens. And as I say, he has no rights before the grand jury. And as a matter of fact, I think it is more beneficial to the government than it is to the citizen. Unquote. Yule Kilcher, a farmer and journalist from Homer who had been an Alaska resident since 1936, immediately followed Mr. Taylor, countering his analogy to the dodo bird and Mr. Buckaloo's view on the issue of cost. Mr. Kilcher had a unique background among the delegates that provided him an extremely valuable perspective on government tyranny. Born in Switzerland in 1913 and educated at the University of Bern and the University of Berlin, he left Europe in the mid-1930s as the Nazis were rising in power. Mr. Kilcher appears to have had a dynamic and influential personality. Today's University of Alaska website tells us that Mr. Kilcher's 660-acre homestead near Homer became a popular stop for musicians, military figures, and politicians. 
Visitors range from German millionaires to Hollywood producers to Cambodian priests. Longtime friend Dixie Belcher of Juno said Mr. Kilcher positively impacted the lives of everyone who met him. Alaska Governor Tony Knowles ordered state flags flown at half-staff on the day of his funeral. Mr. Kilcher, who had undoubtedly witnessed significant losses of liberty in pre-war Nazi Germany, said, the cost angle should not be mentioned when civil liberties are in question. He called the grand jury an invaluable right, the only safeguard a citizen has when their case is not dealt with properly, very often for political reasons. Up until then, the delegates had heard only lawyers talk about the grand jury, and he felt it important for a non-lawyer to be heard. Quote, I think a non-lawyer should speak about this matter, too. And I am very surprised that one time the dodo bird should be a symbol and the next time the eagle. I am also surprised that one day they are going to be rabid reformists and reject conventions when it is handy. And the next time we are frowning upon innovation when it is equally handy. I think that the grand jury essentially is an added protection to the citizens, specifically to the criminal cases. I am in favor of the amendment. And I think the cost angle, when civil, when civic liberties aren't questioned, should not be mentioned, unquote. Following these remarks by Mr. Kilcher, some of the delegates spoke in favor of Mr. Taylor's view, focusing primarily on the cost angle. Mr. Davis countered their thoughts in a rather lengthy rebuttal. He said the grand jury is not always under the control of the prosecutor, and cited as an example the recent grand jury in Anchorage that returned approximately 10, quote, no true bills, unquote. He felt it was important to preserve the right to have the criminal matters investigated by a grand jury if the accused wants it done that way. Mr. Kilcher followed up on Mr. Davis's point by providing the delegates with more detail on the roots of his opinion. Quote, I recall personally a situation eight or nine years ago that brought it to my attention forcefully how the grand jury can be utterly vital. I think the grand jury can to some extent come into play in situations that your amendment yesterday was trying to remedy. The grand jury in its investigative power, as well as for the fact that it is sitting there as a panel, sometimes is the only recourse for a citizen to get justice, to get redress from abuse in lower courts. It is the only place where a citizen who had a just case, but who has refused to have his just case treated in by the lower court, as, is at, as it is now in the territory, the commissioner's court, to appeal directly to the grand jury is the only way. If the commissioner refuses to have the case appealed in superior court, this is my personal experience, it is the only safeguard a citizen occasionally has when for any reason and very often for political reasons, a case is not dealt with properly. The grand jury can be appealed to directly, which is an invaluable right to the citizen, unquote. These expressions of opinion by Mr. Davis and Mr. Kilcher seem to turn the tide, prompting more delegates to speak. Marvin Mucktuck Marston soon ventured into the debate. Mr. Marston was a builder and businessman from Anchorage who had been an Alaska resident since 1940. He would later be appointed 
Alaska's Goodwill Ambassador by Governor Egan. He became a lifetime honorary member of the Cook Inlet Native Association. Later in life, Mr. Marston would write a book about the Alaskan Eskimos in World War II that Senator Ernest Screening introduced as, quote, a story of epic dimensions and significance, unquote. Senator Greening's introduction gives further insight into the patriotic, patriotic character of this Alaskan founder. Quote, Marvin R. Marston had worked as a miner in northern Ontario. He had served in World War I. When the Second World War loomed, he felt a patriotic desire to serve again. Next to nothing was known about Alaska in military circles, but Marston's Bush experience seemed to authorities in the national capital to qualify him for that remote area. Early in 1941, commissioned as a major, he found himself in the newly authorized Fort Richard and Elmendorf complex near Anchorage. Mr. Marston threw his support behind Mr. Davis's proposed amendment. He spoke about an, quote, Arctic friend, unquote, of his, who had been falsely accused and would have lost his job and, quote, been a derelict on the shores of white man's civilization, unquote, had not the grand jury investigated and summoned Mr. Marston to testify. The grand jury found a no true bill, and now the man is a free citizen, has his job, and is doing all right. Quote, Mr. President, may I speak on this? I had a case of an Arctic friend of mine who came afoul of the law and landed in the jail. And I took him out, got his bail, and the grand jury was good enough to send for me to talk for him. If that man had to sit there for trial, he wouldn't have had the money to fight it. He would have lost his job and a derelict on the shores of white man's civilization. I went before the grand jury. They found what I learned was a no true bill handed to him, and he is a free citizen, has his job, and is doing all right. On that basis, I am going to vote for Mr. Davis's amendment and preserve that grand jury. Robert McNeely, a lawyer from Fairbanks who was on the Rights Committee, next jumped into the fray and spoke at length. Mr. McNeely had been an Alaska resident since 1940 and had previously worked as a federal law enforcement officer and prosecutor. Speaking from personal experience, he agreed with Mr. Buckaloo that in 99 of 100 cases, a prosecutor can convince a grand jury to indict. However, he expressed a more neutral position acknowledging that when the appointed prosecutors become a little overzealous, sometimes a grand jury will return a no true bill. His speech on these points was, quote, I feel that this grand jury situation is important enough to possibly take up a few more minutes of the time of the delegates here, but again, I don't think it is something that I am not too strongly persuaded for or against the amendment. Any prosecuting attorney before the grand jury, if he really wants an indictment, and I would say 99 out of 100 cases, he could secure the indictment because you can furnish hearsay evidence to the members of the grand jury. The only thing at all that I could speak in favor of the grand jury for is simply this, that occasionally our appointed prosecutors become a little overzealous and will want to secure a number of convictions, and in some of those instances, a grand jury will return a no true bill. Mr. McNeely continued by providing delegates with an example 
of the significant harm that can result from false accusations and overzealous prosecutors. Quote, even more important, I think, is the fact that during the time I was in office, they had citizens here who would come in with complaints against others. And in three or four instances that I remember distinctly, they were prominent citizens of the town here. Charges were filed against them, and it was presented directly to the grand jury. And the grand jury heard the evidence and returned a no true bill. They were more or less prominent citizens of the town who were not criminally inclined, and it was a secret indictment in three cases. The parties did not even know the charges were filed before the grand jury. Unquote. Another noteworthy point that Mr. McNeely raised was the inability of the public to hold their prosecutors accountable through the election process, thereby increasing the dangers of prosecuting on information without the involvement of a grand jury. Quote, I think the ordinary criminal is, or the person charged with a crime, is well protected by the system of information. But the only thing that could offset that would be if the state prosecutors are elected and not appointed by the Judicial Council. Then it may be that since they are elected officials, they may not be so prone to jump out and start prosecutions under information, unquote. Next to speak on the merits of the issue was Ralph Robertson, a Juno attorney and like Mr. Rivers, an Alaska resident since 1906, a founder of the well-known Juno law firm of Robertson, Monago, and Eastaw. He had served as the mayor of Juno from 1920 to 23 and president of the Juno School Board from 1924 to 47. Mr. Robinson called Mr. Davis's amendment a great thing and spoke from his personal extensive experience in Juno courts. Quote, I have defended a good many of the accused. I have watched for the past several years down in the first division, and it seems to me that the use of an information against the accused is being greatly overdone and being done without entire fairness to the accused, unquote. Chairman Oz then spoke up to let everyone know that her silence on the grand jury should not be taken by the other delegates as a sign she did not favor the proposal of the Rights Committee. Quote, I do favor the bill the way it stands. I agree with everything that Mr. Buckaloo has said because I felt he and some of the others on the committee knew more about criminal law than I did. I preferred to let them speak but I don't want it implied that I do not favor this provision. I do, unquote. Mildred Herman, a lawyer from Juno who had been a resident here since 1919, soon jumped into the debate. Miss Herman had arrived in Juno as a school teacher from Indiana, but later became a lawyer after studying law with Judge Wickersham and taking correspondence courses. Miss Herman told the delegates of her considerable experience as a defense attorney. She spoke of the, quote, misplaced zeal, unquote, of some district attorneys and the, quote, lack of reverence, unquote, she had for some of them, even though she had one in the family and was quite fond of him. She said she had seen, quote, a great many innocent people plead guilty rather than wait for the grand jury, unquote. She had seen enough innocent people convicted to know that our justice system is far from perfect. In her view, the grand jury protects the public, and she announced her intention to vote for Mr. Davis's amendment. Quote, I thought I would stay out of this hassle, but I feel constrained to stand up and say I approve of Mr. Davis's amendment. And I 
also have had a considerable volume of experience as a defense attorney. I also have seen the misplaced zeal of some of our district attorneys that Mr. Robinson mentioned. In my 20 years experience as an attorney in the courts of Alaska exclusively, have given me no reason to have too much reverence for district attorneys, even though I have one in the family, and I think very highly of him. The fact of the matter is that I have seen a great many innocent people plead guilty rather than wait for the grand jury to meet. I have also seen innocent people convicted, not a lot of them, but I've seen it enough to know that it is done and that our system of justice as, as it now stands is far from perfect. There is no reason on earth why a grand jury cannot be called to be available any time there is business to be considered, and that indictments of a grand jury can be preserved in that way. But there is also a considerable volume of people that appear to be tried, that appear in court, that are unjustly called there. I don't believe in protecting the guilty, but I do believe in con considering them innocent until they are proved guilty. I have, from personal experience, found that the grand jury protects the public, not the criminal or the alleged criminal, but the public as a whole, unquote. Vic Rivers, an engineer from Anchorage and lifelong Alaskan since 1906, spoke briefly in favor of Mr. Davis's amendment. Former Deputy U.S. Marshal Steve McCutcheon from Anchorage, another lifelong Alaskan resident since 1911, spoke next. He was opposed to Mr. Davis's amendment agreeing with Mr. Buckaloo on a minimal level of protection provided by grand juries. He said grand juries hear only evidence presented by the prosecutor, perhaps not realizing the extent of their duty to investigate the truth of the matter independently, embodied in each of the jurors' oaths. Quote, it is true that a grand jury does not protect the public from an overzealous prosecutor. An overzealous prosecutor can present such types of evidence as is necessary to bring in a true bill. A grand jury only hears the evidence that is presented by one person, the prosecutor, unquote. Mr. Davis wrapped up the debate with his, on his proposed amendment with the following speech, quote, Mr. President, I almost wish I had not brought this matter up, but to my notion, it is vital. And that is the reason I did bring it up, and that is the reason I am speaking for the third time. I want to make it clear that I am not at all interested in those persons that Mr. Hellenthal has called, quote, those persons evilly disposed, unquote. Those persons can take care of themselves. I am interested in the occasional person who is charged with a crime and who is completely innocent of that crime. And so far as I am concerned, if even one person is charged with a crime who is innocent and who may have the matter disposed of without having to stand trial, it's worth the cost. And it seems to be apparent here from everything that has been said that in spite of the fact the district attorney controls the grand jury, in spite of the fact that he presents evidence that he would not, that would not be received in a court at law, in spite of the fact that the grand jury hears only one side of the thing, the grand jury occasionally, and we might say even frequently, finds there is not cause to hold a man for trial who has been charged by the district attorney. Unquote. Mr. Egan brought the debate to a close, and after a short recess, the delegates voted. Mr. Davis's amendment passed by a very large margin, 39 to 12. Over half of the no votes had spoken during the debate, while a much smaller percentage of the yes votes had expressed their opinions. 
The debate appears to have caused both Mr. Rivers and Mr. Taylor to change their minds. They voted yes for the amendment after originally supporting the Rights Committee's proposal because of the cost of grand juries and the infrequency that they met. The message of the delegates in the 39 to 12 vote was clear. Prosecutorial misconduct, whether ranging from bias to overzealousness to abuse, must be guarded against no matter the cost, especially in a state system where the public does not have the opportunity to elect their prosecutors and judges. The only other aspect of the Rights Committee's recommendations on the Alaska Grand Jury to receive significant attention from the delegates was its power to investigate public officials. The committee seemed a little unclear regarding the extent of the Grand Jury's investigative powers into civic matters. The proposed language in Section 7, specifically protecting the grand jury's investigation into willful misconduct of public officers, seemed more confined than the language seemed more confined than the language in its commentary that, quote, the grand jury is preserved for all purposes, particularly for the investigation of public officials, unquote. In the floor debate that ensued on this issue, it became apparent that Mr. Buckaloo and John Hellenthal, both members of the Rights Committee, viewed this issue differently. Mr. Buckaloo was opposed to unlimited investigative and reporting powers of the grand jury, while Mr. Hellenthal was very much in support of them. As it would turn out, Mr. Buckaloo was the only delegate to express any opposition to protecting the extremely broad investigatory and reporting powers under common law of the Alaska Grand Jury. During the prior debate regarding the use of grand juries in criminal proceedings, some of the delegates had made some passing references to its, investiga- to its investigative powers in civic matters. These comments are useful in demonstrating that while there may have been substantial vocal disagreement regarding use of grand jury in criminal matters, there was practically no disagreement towards its use in civic matters. Except for Mr. Buckaloo, the need for its extremely broad common law powers was unquestioned. Mr. Rivers, the former attorney general, who initially opposed the use of grand juries in criminal matters, thought they served a useful purpose in in investigating things like jails, frauds, and scandals. He said, quote, Mr. President, I started the discussion on this point yesterday when I asked the chairman of the committee what they thought about it and what their thinking was. The grand jury once a year investigates the jails, and sometimes it is useful where any particular fraud or general scandal has occurred, and I think they serve a useful purpose, unquote. Mr. Taylor, who had previously expressed that the use of grand juries in criminal matters should go to the way of the dodo, also favored retaining the grand jury for investigative purposes of officials and public institutions. He said, quote, I would say retain the grand jury, all right, for investigative purposes of officials and public institutions. But why not proceed the same as most states do? We might as well relegate it to oblivion where it belongs because it, no, because it serves no useful purpose except for just investigative purposes, unquote. Delegate John Hellenthal was an Anchorage lawyer who was a lifetime resident of Alaska, having been born in Juneau to a family with extensive roots here. His father, Simon, 
had arrived in 1905 to join his older brother Jack in the practice of law. And in 1916, they built the Hellenthal Building, located at 100 North Franklin Street. Simon moved to Valdez in 1935 after being appointed by President Roosevelt as a territorial judge, where he traveled with his staff in the, quote, floating court, unquote, a boat which held court proceedings in various towns and villages in Alaska. John went outside to obtain his law degree from Notre Dame University and returned to Juneau to practice with his uncle. During World War II, Delegate Helenthal enlisted in the U.S. National Guard, where he was stationed at Fort Richardson in Anchorage. After the war, he served as the Anchorage City Attorney from 1948 to 1952. Mr. Helenthal had been opposed to the grand jury's use in criminal proceedings and, one, and was one of the 12 delegates to cast a no vote to Mr. Davis's amendment. During the debate on that issue, he had briefly expressed the following thoughts on the grand jury's usefulness in civic matters. Quote, the grand jury should certainly and definitely be preserved as an investigating agency. There is no question about it at all, unquote. Mr. Davis, whose amendment was instrumental in preserving the grand jury's role in criminal investigations, also spoke favorably favorably during the prior debate of the regular grand jury's ability to investigate matters and take any steps it feels is necessary in connection with an investigation. He also alluded to the ability of a special investigative grand jurors to be called when conditions get, quote, pretty bad, unquote. Quote, now it is true that the investigative grand jury has been preserved in the bill as set forth here. However, an investigative grand jury will only be called under certain sp specific circumstances, and somebody is going to have to find conditions pretty bad before an investigative grand jury will be called. Whereas a grand jury which is impaneled regularly, once or twice a year in our division, has full investigative power, as well as the power to consider indictments. The grand jury is there, and may take any steps that it feels may be necessary towards investigation, unquote. The preceding statements were made during the debate on the use of grand juries in criminal matters, but are, but are important for showing the intent of delegates who did not feel a need to speak up during the ensuing debate on the scope of the investigatory power. After the floor overwhelmingly voted to require the grand jury's use in criminal cases, the delegates next considered and voted on some other provisions in the proposed Bill of Rights. Section 7 received some additional attention regarding its application to military events and the number of grand jurors that would sit on a panel. Delegate Lucien Barr from Fairbanks then introduced a new amendment pertaining to the grand jury. Mr. Barr was a former cavalryman, parachute jumper, and test pilot who moved to Alaska in 1932 to work for a Yukon Gold Expedition. He became a bush pilot and one of Alaska's early aviation pioneers. He also served for a time as a U.S. Marshal in the 4th Judicial District. Mr. Barr's proposed amendment substantially increased the constitutionally protected investigative and reporting powers of the grand jury in civic matters. Expanding to matters far beyond the initial scope of, quote, 
willful misconduct in office of public officers and to find indictments in connection therewith, unquote. The constitutional protection that Mr. Barr sought would now fully extend to the grand jury's common law investigatory and reporting powers. His amendment read, quote, the power of grand juries to investigate and make recommendations concerning conditions detrimental to the public health welfare, excuse me, concerning conditions detrimental to the public welfare or safety shall never be suspended, unquote. Mr. Buckaloo objected to Mr. Barr's proposed amendment. The relatively young newcomer to Alaska felt that anything short of a criminal indictment should not be reported to the public. He was worried that the report could damage the person's reputation and there would be little that person could do about it. In saying, quote, I think it is an unheard of provision, unquote, he demonstrated his lack of knowledge of the extensive common law history of the investigatory and reporting powers of the grand jury. There is certainly nothing in his following statement that would indicate he favored protecting, quote, incompetent officials from the public, unquote, over protection of the public from incompetent officials. Quote, from my first impression and my prime objection to this particular amendment is that I think and feel certain it will open the door, for example, the grand jury might have under investigation the conduct of some public, particular public office, for example, the governor or any public official, the local tax collector. They don't have enough evidence to return an indictment, but this would give them the power to blast them good and hard. And I think it would lead to all kinds of trouble. And I think it is an unheard of provision. The recommendation of the committee provided that the grand jury could investigate, they could return indictments, but it certainly did not give them the privilege to more or less defame somebody if they did not quite if they did not have quite enough action for a bill under this they could discredit him completely and he would have no way of answering he might be able to come back and get the report of the grand jury stricken from the records of the court but the damage would then be done i think it is extremely dangerous because a citizen would not have any protection once it is published, the only thing he could do would be to then come in and ask the court to strike portions of it. For that reason, I would object to it, unquote. Delegate Ralph Rivers then asked for clarification for Mr. Barr on the extent of the powers involved in his proposed amendment. Was he content with expanding the protected investigative and reporting powers just to, quote, public offices and institutions, unquote? Or did he want to extend that protection either further to, quote, investigate anything involving the public welfare, unquote. Critically, the alternative amendment offered by Mr. Barr increased the protection of the grand jury's reporting power. The phrase, quote, make recommendations, unquote, was significantly broader than the, quote, find indictments, unquote, language in the original proposal of the Rights Committee. This distinction has been stressed by Judge Vanderbilt in his quote that, quote, no community desires to live a hairbreadth above the criminal level, unquote, in explaining how presentments are a great deterrent to official wrongdoing. Mr. Rivers' specific statement and question of clarification to Mr. Barr on the delegate floor is as follows, quote, 
The present province of our grand jury is to investigate public offices and, and institutions, not just to investigate anything involving the public welfare. I wonder if Mr. Barr is intending to try to preserve what we already have now as the province of the grand jury. Would you consent to having it worded as, quote, investigate public offices and institutions and make recommendations, unquote? Delegate Barr replied that the power should be even broader than investigating and making recommendations as to public offices and institutions. He said the purpose of the grand jury is to protect the rights of citizens. Quote, no, I think that their power should be a little broader than that. I don't know what the powers are right now exactly, but I do know that they make recommendations concerning other things than public offices and officers, and under this provision, it would only investigate and make recommendations concerning things that endangered public welfare safety. And I believe that is what the grand jury is for, to protect the rights of its citizens. They don't necessarily have to defame any person or mention him by name. If the tax collector was using methods not acceptable to the public, they might make a recommendation for a change in the system of tax collection, etc., and I think it would be their duty to do so. Mr. Hellenthal spoke next, clarifying for all delegates that the grand jury can investigate anything. His response also downplayed the concerns of Mr. Buckaloo that a public official could be undeservedly blasted pretty good by saying, quote, in the history of the United States, there have been few runaway grand juries, extremely few, unquote. The speech from the lawyer's son of a territorial judge showing his familiar, familiarity with the common law history of the grand jury is as follows, quote, Mr. President, my suggestion was that the word detrimental be stricken and the word involving be inserted because I agree with Mr. Barr that the investigatory power of a grand jury is extremely broad, not as narrow as Mr. Rivers contends. I think a grand jury can investigate anything, and it is true that there is little protection against what they call in the vernacular a runaway grand jury. But in the history of the United States, there have been few runaway grand juries, extremely few, and I think that the broad statement of power that Mr. Barr asked for is healthy and proper, unquote. No other delegate joined Mr. Buckaloo in his opposition to Mr. Barr's expansive amendment. Delegate George Sumberg from Juneau then moved to amend Mr. Barr's amendment by striking the words detrimental to and inserting involving, thereby expanding the grand jury's protection even, even further. Mr. Barr was agreeable to Mr. Sumberg's revision and his amendment went to vote. The delegates of the AAC overwhelmingly rejected Mr. Buckaloo's concerns and voted 44 to 8 in favor of expanding the protected powers of the grand jury. Joining in the majority was Mr. Rivers, the former Alaska Attorney General who asked for the clarification on Mr. Barr's amendment and asked if he was willing to limit it just to recommendations following investigation of public offices and institutions. The Alaska Grand Jury's ability to investigate and make recommendations on anything involving the public welfare remains protected by our Constitution today. All eight delegates from Juneau unanimously voted in favor of Mr. Barr's expansive amendment. 
Delegates Herman, Robertson, and Sunberg were joined by pharmacist H.R. Vanderleest, teacher Catherine Nordale, businessman Doug Gray, businesswoman Dora Sweeney, and clergyman Ronald Armstrong. Mr. Buckaloo was, was the only one of 55 delegates to voice any opposition to constitutionally protecting the exceptionally broad investigatory and reporting powers of the Alaska Grand Jury. Mr. Hellenthal quickly countered his opposition by saying grand juries can investigate anything. He saw the broad, the broad powers as, quote, proper and healthy, unquote. Mr. Sunberg followed by expanding the proposed amendment either further from, quote, detrimental to the public welfare, unquote, to, quote, involving the public welfare, unquote. 39 delegates had voted against Mr. Buckaloo's attempt to remove the use of grand juries in criminal matters, but even more delegates, 44, voted against his attempt to restrict the constitutionally protected common law powers of the grand jury. Perhaps Mr. Buckaloo's distrust of grand juries stemmed from his apparent lack of knowledge of the common law, or perhaps from being a more recent arrival to Alaska. In contrast, Mr. Hellenthal was, was born in Juneau and had lived his entire life in Alaska, the son of a lo local judge and nephew of a local lawyer. Perhaps the difference in their opinions was Mr. Hellenthal's familiarity with Alaska citizens and willingness to trust them to independently investigate and convey their findings to the public on matters of importance. Perhaps Mr. Hellenthal also knew from experience of Alaska's vulnerability to, to powerful outside financial interests and the need to hold wayward government officials in check. When the Alaska Constitution was unanimously adopted by our founders a few months later in 1956, the citizen's right to a grand jury was cemented into Article 1, Section 8, and read as follows. Quote, no person shall be, head to shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on presentment or indictment of a grand jury except in cases arising in the armed forces in time of war, public danger. Indictment may be waived by the accused. In that case, the prosecution shall be by information. The grand jury shall consist of at least 12 citizens, a majority of who concurring may return an indictment. The power of grand juries to investigate and make recommendations concerning the public welfare or safety shall never be suspended. Unquote. The common law power of the grand jury preserved for Alaska citizens in Section 8 shares the same footing with other important principles of our freedom found in Article 1, the Declaration of Rights, such as freedom of speech, found in Section 5, freedom of religion, found in Section 4, due process, found in Section 7, civil rights, found in Section 13, and habeas corpus, found in Section 13. None of these inherent rights can be unilaterally taken away from us by the Alaska legislature, the Alaska governor, or the Alaska Supreme Court. Article 12 of the Alaska Constitution guarantees us the only way to amend any constitutional right is through a formal proposal that passes by a two-thirds vote in both the Alaska House and Senate. At that point, the proposal must be taken to the people of Alaska at the next general election. Following all these steps, only then, by a majority vote of the people, can a constitutional amendment become valid.
Chapter 11 will discuss how the Alaska Judicial Council would later acknowledge the investigatory power of the grand jury protected by the Alaska Constitution is very broad. The council also acknowledged the protection inherent in the phrase, quote, never be suspended, unquote, means the common law powers of the Alaska grand jury can never be hindered or delayed. In 1987, they would issue a report stating, quote, public welfare or safety has been interpreted very broadly and includes concerns with public order, health, or morals. Black's Law Dictionary defines general welfare as the government's concern for the health, peace, morals, and safety of its citizens. Suspend is defined in case law and by blacks as to cause to cease for a time, to postpone, to stay, delay, or hinder. In other words, the Alaska Constitution gives grand juries the power to investigate into and make recommendations addressing virtually anything of public concern. The broad general power can never be hindered or delayed, unquote. Since Section 8 of Article 1 was adopted in 1956, it has never been amended. The legislature can't pass any statute that hinders or delays an Alaska grand jury from exercising its broad investigatory and reporting powers. Neither can the Alaska Supreme Court adopt procedural rules that hinder or delay these broad common law powers. Yet, as we shall see in Chapter 12, that is exactly what three judges on the Alaska Supreme Court attempted to do. Thankfully, their two colleagues stuck to their guns and called them out on it. But first, we will explore a Juneau Grand Jury's investigation of its governor in 1985, which drew the historical enemies of the grand jury out into the open. And that's the end of Chapter 8. I wish that I could have been a fly on the wall at that, uh, at that meeting. Uh, it's really interesting to hear the comments of the delegates. And, you know, this, this issue came up this year uh, for Alaskans to consider having a, another constitutional meeting, a constitutional convention. And it's no coincidence, I mean, and, and that, that uh, question failed, but I, I think it's no coincidence that uh, there was a massive amount of outside influence on the election this year uh, and outside interests that wanted to convince Alaskans that they would be powerless in uh, controlling or participating in a convention. And I think it's, it's uh, you know, after the fact, now that the, the, the vote has failed uh, for us to have a convention, you know, um, we can look at the timing of your book and uh, sort of this recap or, or review of what happened at that first uh, convention. And maybe look at what happened this year and say, I'm not sure that we got the whole story from those who wanted to uh, inform us, quote unquote, about uh, what our decision actually was. Because I heard a lot of fear mongering uh, in the media about, uh, oh, well, this is opening Pandora's box and you don't want to go there because the whole thing will be railroaded and, 
and uh, Alaskans will lose their voice and powerful outside interests will be able to control the day. But ironically, it was powerful outside interests that were pitching that, uh, that story. Yeah. It, you know, um, what's, what's done is done. And unfortunately we're not going to get another, uh, constitutional convention, uh, issue on the ballot for, you know, another, another nine, 10 years. Uh, so we, you know, we need to move on and, and next up in, in, you know, my agenda is to call for a constitutional amendment. Uh, but, you know, just, you know, pe- people should never forget, uh, you know, who was behind the no vote. Uh, as you said, Jason, it was a lot of outside money. It was mostly outside money from Washington, D.C. Um, the 1630 fund, according to APOC, uh, uh, registrations, uh, put up something like three and a half million dollars. And then, uh, education unions from Washington, D.C. put up another million dollars. And if you look at, uh, you know, the amount of money that was raised by or from individuals supporting a no vote, uh, you know, it was like $50,000. And the, on, on the other side, there was a, there was a group, uh, called, I think, Convention Yes. And I think the total amount of money that they raised was $80,000. And it was, I think, almost entirely from individuals uh, inside Alaska. I think there was one group. I think it was like maybe the Republican Women's Group of uh, Anchorage or someplace like that that donated $1,000. Um, and so and they were very the, the, the no vote crowd, like you said, it was a message of fear. And they were very well organized. Like an open question I have is to the uh, uh the Alaska Municipal League, uh, they passed a resolution a year ago uh, coming out against, uh, uh, you know, they, they wanted to support a no vote uh, on the Constitution or a constitutional convention. And, you know, I, I wrote them, you know, two emails uh, saying, why? You know, why did you do this? You know, now, if you, and, can, if you and, can speak, just I want to I want to identify two two terms or concepts here. Uh, that you use that maybe people have heard before, but they're not familiar with. The first being APOC, which stands for the Alaska Public Offices Commission. They're the folks that uh, collect all the data and and that uh, political entities uh, have to file their financial reports with so that they can create some uh, transparency about where uh, where folks and and, and initiatives get their funding from. the next is the Alaska Municipal League. Can you just give us a brief definition of what the, the league is and what it does? Well, you know, I'm, I, I don't have a, you know, a, a full understanding of that. I mean, they're, they're a, basically a collection of uh, municipalities uh, throughout the state of Alaska. I think there's something like maybe 160 of them, you know, communities throughout Alaska that are members. And they have a uh, uh, they have articles of incorporation, and it says specifically in those article of incorporations that they are to be you know nonpartisan. You know they can't take political sides in things, and uh, they are you know their their actions are governed by a, a board of directors, which is about oh sixteen seventeen uh, individuals throughout the state of Alaska that serve in some capacity and you know various. Uh, uh, communities that they represent. And so, you know, for me, the, the, uh, uh, 
you know, the, the no vote was, was, was very partisan. Uh, you know, I think Lauren, you know, was at one of the constitutional convention debates, Lauren Lehman, former lieutenant governor, you know, he spent his time uh, talking about how 30 years ago, a Democrat leader in the, in the House admitted to him that Democrats will always control uh, the judiciary because of the way that we select judges. I, I mean, that to me, that is, um, that's frightening. Uh, in, in, in any healthy democracy, a judiciary is supposed to be completely independent. And, uh, you know, that's, that's something that, that no side w- can argue on. So, you know, my question to the, to the Alaska Municipal League Board of Directors was, you know, what, what was your thinking here? You know, why, why are you coming out and opposing this a year ago and throwing your support behind Defend Our Constitution, which got all this money from, you know, outside D.C.? That doesn't sound very Alaskan. Well, and, so, and, and you know we can we can point to the folks outside of the the uh, the state, you know, pushing their agendas and and their influence into our systems. But you know, uh, also something of of uh, note that kind of raised my eyebrows and hackles a bit was uh, within you know the Republican Party itself. We're not going to talk about the Democrats or, or in the other the other organizations, but the but as far as the Republican Party went, you know there was there was some citizen led activism uh, this last year, specifically targeting you know a few members of the uh, Republican Party and and the the citizen led activism I'm I'm mentioning came from within the party itself. Um, exerting pressure on elected officials to actually follow through with the commitments they made when they uh, were elected and uh, enough pressure so that when the party held its annual meeting, uh, these elected representatives spoke uh, very aggressively at the end of the convention to censure or restrict Anyone who participated in training offered by an organization called the Foundation for Applied Conservative Leadership, which is a, a uh, nonprofit um, grassroots organizing uh, and educational um, uh, program they, where they come in and they provide tools to grassroots folks, rank and file members of, of the party who want to become more active and these leaders actively called for punishment of constituents who dared to stand up and demand that they follow through with the promises they made when they ran for their their office. And so we see this dynamic resistance coming from outside the state, but also within the state, and there's there. What's that adage? Uh, uh, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think I got that right. Yep, I think so. And and uh, and we see that these folks who and and you know arguably, you know, you might look at some of these guys and say, man, what happened to them? They when they entered, they were such bright lights for freedom and liberty in the 
the uh, the whatever party line they were they were spending, and then how quickly it all fell apart. And one has to wonder, you know, if if a politician today goes into office, you know, if they can survive in office if they stand on their principles, because we can look at examples like uh, Mr. Eastman out of Wasilla, who now now you know another another issue with our courts and activist judges is that they're talking about not certifying his election. And he was elected by a, a dominant majority of people in his district uh, because of his affiliation with the national organization that has been demonized recently, the Oath Keepers. And, uh, and his affiliation, the grand sum total of it was, I think he, uh, he made a donation once. And so now they're, now they're talking about being able to pick and choose who they will allow to run for office to represent uh, people. And um, this isn't just, I, I don't think this, this erosion of the, the grand jury system is, is, a, is in a vacuum. I think it's part of a larger erosion of our system of governance across the board. And uh, in Alaska, it's kind of like we live in a Petri dish. There's so few of us, we can see each other. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, 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 uh, and when bad stuff goes down, everybody knows about it. And, um, but, but really, the, I think the thing that people need to get past is this idea that they have no power and that they have no voice. Because that's what, that's what the, the opposition uh, to true uh, expressions of liberty and the people uh, it's been is that is that the the people have no power and that you should fear uh, opportunities to express your voice and uh, uh, as the constitutional convention would have allowed Alaskans to do and it's I I think back to World War II when we when we look at the situation with the Nazis and the concentration camps that they had and there's been a lot of discussion about why didn't the Jews just just uh, rise up. Why didn't they, and it wasn't just Jews in the concentration camps, but a lot of them were, when there were so many of them in these places being held by a comparatively small force of guards that could have been easily overrun. Yes, some people would have died in the process, but um, not necessarily so many as did in the gas chambers and, and through starvation and deprivation. And, um, and, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about conditioning and brainwashing and, and the, the, the perception that you are powerless and what that does to you. And people need to stop, stop dwelling on how they can't make a difference and how they don't have a voice because you can make a difference and you do have a voice and the grand jury is a major tool in your toolbox for expressing that. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say uh, it, it's one. Of, yeah, it, it's definitely a major tool. Uh, it's one of the only ones that we that we have uh, in that we don't, you know, we can't as as of now we can't elect elect our prosecutors or our judges, and so uh, you know we can elect our our governor, we can elect our uh, legislators, and and we have the grand jury uh, to investigate and make recommendations. You know, it was interesting what you were saying earlier about the Republican Party. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm an independent. Uh, I don't belong to the Republican Party. And, uh, you know, I, I, I choose the, you know, I, I believe in choosing the, the best candidate for the job. 
no matter what side of the aisle they come from or whether they're in the middle. Um, but I was just reading an article uh, before, you know, before we started this podcast in Must Read Alaska, and Suzanne Downing writes how uh, the Senate, uh, e- even though 11 out of 20 uh, uh, members of the Senate are Republican, uh, Democrats are going to control uh, a majority of the committees. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's this whole thing about the caucuses and, and selling your vote. And, and uh, I, you know, the Republican Party's, you know, the, the Democrats got to be laughing all the way to the bank at, you know, at, at the, uh, the upheaval in the Republican Party. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that the Republicans can get their act together uh, because, Right now, you there's it looks to me like there's a complete imbalance of power, and uh, you know I, I want to see this constitutional amendment get passed, which changes how the uh, judiciary is selected, you know, and 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 if the Democrats do control the judiciary, how many of those Democrats are going to support that constitutional amendment? I mean, it's it's disgusting um, that we have a judiciary that is controlled by one party or the other. Uh, that is completely un-American. And as I wrote in an opinion recently, you know, every, every Democrat should be ashamed to, to know that they own the judiciary and the process of selecting judges. That needs to change. And, you know, all we can do, Jason, is shine the light of truth on this. And, um, you know, and 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 hopefully uh, enough people will recognize that we need a truly independent judiciary. And uh, so that's going to be one of my focuses in the, you know, the upcoming year is is to try to, you know, bring this to light. It would help to be able to have grand jury investigations to do this as well. Um, and the other thing I wanted to uh, mention is. I, I'm, I'm starting to hear about um, an upcoming. Uh, there's been a requested grand jury investigation in OCS, and I believe there's going to be a hearing uh, in Anchorage in front of this Judge Morris uh, in December 13th or 14th or something like that. And uh, you know, I would urge um, uh, you know residents of, of Anchorage and in, in the area who can who can you know get there. To, to support uh, this grand jury investigation, just like the people in Kenai have, have supported uh, David Hegg, David Hegg's uh, cause. I, I don't know too much about this uh, requested investigation in OCS, but uh, the last day or two, I've been looking through some of the reports of the ombudsman on OCS, and uh, it's a mess. And uh, it needs to be investigated, and it needs to be investigated by a grand jury. Well, and, um, and here, here's, here's something that uh, and until you've really lived inside the belly of the beast or at least had to dance with the beast that is OCS, um, you know, as, a, as a, a party to a case and until you've dug into the case law that guides how the court uh, makes its determinations in OCS cases – you don't really understand the what uh, control, Democrat control of our courts 
um, what kind of significance that really has. I mean, yes, we can talk about control and have this broader sense of, you know, well, things aren't right and, and we should have what the Constitution tells us we should have, but we don't. And why is that? And who's responsible? And, you know, but uh, there was... I, I can't remember the, the site reference. I'll, I'll have to I'll have to do some research. But I remember um, when I was working on the case I alluded to last uh, last episode, um, where the court found in in our favor when I was representing the tribe, um, that uh, the attorney I was working with um, showed how the Supreme Court of Alaska had made, I think it was two different separate decisions that basically took the evidentiary standard. Now there's typically, if you go to, if you go to law school or you study law, they'll tell you, you know, there's, there's two levels of, of evidentiary, um, uh, I guess, proofs that need to be offered in different cases. One is for criminal cases and one is for civil cases and they're, and they're different levels of evidence uh, the burden of proof that the state has to carry when it's prosecuting, and uh, or in, in, a, in a lawsuit where the the uh, suing uh, party has to prove their case, um, and and one of those is the that uh, by the preponderance of the evidence, I, I guess it's a ninety nine point nine percent likelihood that a crime has been committed. Um, that in at least in in a jury's instruction, they'll tell them, you know, if you can't, if there's any any, any uh, shadow of doubt that uh, well, a crime I would just uh, correct you. Uh, you know, preponderance of the evidence basically means you know that's the, the other the, one. The tipping of the scale, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the civil. Yeah, that's the civil. Sorry. Yeah, whereas uh, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt is one standard in criminal. Another one is clear and convincing evidence. Right. And, you know, it starts getting very uh, uh, nebulous. Well, like what is clear and convincing evidence? For instance? And but. in Alaska, when it came to the issue of child protection, they had this additional standard that the, the justices created. And it was uh, more likely than not. And the way that and and it wasn't a unanimous decision. I, there were two dissenting judges uh, in in one of the one of the cases I remember, who said uh, they used the analogy that uh, if you were to buy, I think I think they actually used an Alaska example. If you were to buy tickets to the Kuskokwim Ice Classic, where people bet on when uh or guess on when the river's gonna break up and and there's basically a you know a big a big uh lottery that that folks can can uh try and win that uh if i were to buy one nanana ice classic ticket and you were to buy five nanana ice classic tickets that it would be more likely than not that your chances of winning were better than mine. Yeah, whether you bought, you know, whether I bought two or five. Right, um. <laughs> right, or, or 100. And, and, right. and basically what they did, in essence, what the, what the dissenting opinion said was, was they erased evidentiary standards to, to basically nil. They, they made it so subjective that, uh, that it basically left the decision in the, in the judge's hands of... of uh, you know, um, do you want to be that guy when this kid maybe gets hurt? 
that uh, made the decision not to do anything. So it's probably a safer bet just to just to go ahead and let the state take over because we know the state has all these procedures and policies and institutions and, and system. And, and at least we can be assured that a child is more likely than not to, going to be protected under state care. But, but with, uh, with a parent, I mean, that's a gamble, you know, because there's yeah, no, Jason, there's no assurances the, there. Did you know the, uh, the name of that opinion? Was that a Supreme court opinion? I'd it, like it to was. take a look into yeah, that. Yeah, it was. And it was actually two different opinions or two different cases, but, but one of them stood out, uh, dominantly and and that was I was working with the Northern Justice Project at the time, uh, with their attorney Jim Davis. And ironically, I think it's his firm that's uh, pressing the charges or the case against David Eastman right now. <laughs> but um, uh, he brought that to my attention, and and when I looked at that, it, everything made sense because you know uh, when you get hauled into court on a probable cause trial uh, with your kids uh, you know if you're unfortunate enough to have that experience and OCS and the AG's office are there you know doing their thing um, it often feels like and it is in actuality uh, kind of a circus of uh, just a performance because they've already presumed your guilt and uh, and it's for you you to prove your innocence they flipped the justice system on its head. There, there is no presumption of innocence by the time you get to that probable cause stage and they've already taken your children with the erosion of the evidentiary standards as they exist now in our state with these two uh, uh, Supreme Court decisions. And so when we have the Judicial Council and a grossly left-leaning sort of process that, that puts people in there with, with definite political agendas... Uh, is it any wonder that so many people feel that uh, they've been dealt unjustly, you know, dealt with unjustly? And so, well, and this is, yeah, this is one of the things that I think that people on the left don't really understand and appreciate. You know, they, they, they have this perception that the Democrat party is, is, you know, is, is uh, for them, you know, for them and, and supports their, their cause. But when you look at it, it's, it's the, it's the left that it, it's the Democrats that are taking away the rights of, um, you know, of individuals, the rights that are inherent in our constitution, the rights to due process, um, the, you know, there, there's all these constitutional prove- protections. And what I see is, is the Democrat contr- controlled judges are the ones that are that are taking those protections away and giving themselves the power to legislate. I mean, it's just well, and on, yeah, on I, the I, left, on the left, I think there's you know when when we look at the left, I think we have to split it into the left is a big term, right? Just like right. the right is a big term, and when we look at the left, we can say, okay, who exists in the left? Well. You know, if you're voting Democrat and you're on food stamps and, you know, you're a single mom with three or four kids and whatever, you know, and you're voting Democrat, nobody can can blame that person for the problems of our country. They're in survival mode and they've been offered a bill of goods that says we're going to take care of you no matter what. So we can be your backstop. We can be your your safety net. And so. So uh, there are a lot of people who don't have a lot of 
emotional energy left uh, to think about politics and think deeply or multidimensionally about what policies, you know, ultimately do. And they end up buying this narrative that the left throws out there that we're going to we're going to take care of you. And, and they need help. They honestly need help. And so you can't blame them for voting for candidates that are promising these things. But then on the other side, in that big term, the left, you have those who are in power. And uh, those folks take more of a philosopher king sort of uh, higher moral ground position. Like, uh, we know best for you. We will take care of you. It's like the nanny state. You know, you are poor defenseless children. You're the huddled masses who will starve to death unless people with bigger brains and bigger educations and bigger wallets um, are your saviors. And, and they set themselves up to be almost divine, you know, that, that, uh, that uh, they have some kind of superior power and knowledge that's going to save us all from ourselves. And so you get these judges and these lawyers and these high-minded academics in there, and they really look at their own grassroots with contempt. And they spin this narrative of we're going to protect you. Now, this can go the other way when we look at the right. And what's the right pride itself on? Well, you know, the, the big story with the right is, you know, well, we stand for liberty. We stand for a free anything goes marketplace. We stand for individual uh, freedoms to speak our minds and do as we please and and uh, and for the working guy that's uh, just trying to raise a family who believes in traditional values and maybe they have a Judeo-Christian compass or, or at least some of the, uh, the cultural aspects of that, you know, remain, that all sounds great. You know, yeah, I'm for that. Liberty and freedom and four-wheel drive and chainsaws and now I can shoot stuff and, you know, and but then when you flip to the other side of the equation in the right and you go to those folks who have the power it seems like often they're there for their own enrichment they're there for the access that 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 uh that position and title or, or gives them to the deals and they're capitalists and they've just found that the, the, the place that they can get the best deal flow and be in the know and have kind of that insider information before everybody else does is to be the policymaker themselves. And I think the, the left does that as well. But, but, you know, as we look at this, I don't think, and I want to get back to what we talked that we closed with last week, is this isn't a left or right issue. This is an American issue. And we're all Americans. And, uh, if we believe in we the people, then we must join hands across the aisle. We must uh, not let the media and the political you know, pundits keep us divided with their rhetoric and their spin and their narrative and say, no, 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 we're not, we're not going there. Yes, we can have disagreements about what marriage is and you know, uh, some of these other issues that are that are in front of us right now. They, it's it's kind of like they wave a shiny object in our face to keep us distracted while they do all these other things on the side that ultimately deeply impact our lives. And and then we somehow feel powerless because they're like, what the heck just happened? You know, and so we need to we need to put the tribalism aside. And we need to look at the core thing that we can all agree on. 
We are Americans. We have a proud heritage. It hasn't always been good to everyone, but we're daily making strides to be better. Strides to be better. And, um, you know, that's what makes America great, is that we learn from our mistakes, hopefully, and we have the ability to move on. And, and that's what's so, I guess, hopeful about what you've put together in this book and the efforts you're making in Juno and in collaborating and, and talking with these other folks around the state that are similarly minded and engaged in their own efforts to engage the, uh, the, the grand jury is that we can make it better. Yeah, no, I, I, I like where your head is at on this, Jason. Um, you know, one of, uh, something I read this summer that really resonated with me was uh, George Washington's farewell address when he left the office of the United, you know, president of the United States. And, and he really came down on uh, political parties. And you're right. I mean, we, I think we need to start thinking of ourselves as, as Americans uh, you know, gets back to that Pledge of Allegiance that we talked about in the last episode. And we need to come together. We need to unite. Uh, we need to, you know, quit thinking of each other as, you know, Republicans or, or Democrats or independents. We, you know, we, sh- we need to start thinking of ourselves as Americans. Uh, we need to, we absolutely positively have to get the politics out of the judiciary. Uh, the judiciary should rule solely on the on the law and the facts before them not on their political persuasions and so we 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 need to get back to that somehow but uh yes i mean we're we're all in this uh uh together and uh i just hope that uh you know we can get the support that we need for that constitutional amendment to to change how our judges are selected and have them rule on the law and not on their political persuasions well, I'm going to go ahead and close with a, a statement. Um, I like uh, your reference uh, to Yule Kilcher and his participation in the convention. He had a unique background. He had the opportunity to have a slightly different perspective than most Americans because he started out his life as not being an American. And when he came to Alaska, he roughed out a living for him, a legacy rather for him and his descendants in Homer with a a large uh, agricultural, you know, endeavor. And uh, along the way somewhere, I guess he started writing and talking about it as a journalist. And uh, it seems that his testimony, if I heard correctly during this chapter in this episode, served as a pivot point upon which the momentum of the uh, those congregated or, or assembled uh, was shifted. Shifted away from the established legal experts and back squarely into the hands of the people where common law originated from to begin with. You've been listening to the Ammo Can Coffee Social Club Conservative Hour of Power and Enlightenment Salon. Thank you for sticking with us. Looking forward to Chapter 9 tomorrow. Take care, everybody.